you reach for your Bibles for this morning's scripture reading and turn with me to the book of John as we continue in the series this morning, Altered Encounters with Jesus. I feel like Pastor Bruce had a little pep in his step this morning. I don't know if that was because of the Jayhawks won last night or anything as I roll my eyes, but so... John chapter 8, and I actually actually will be starting in verse 53 of chapter 7, so follow along as I read, starting in verse 53 of chapter 7 through verse 11. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Father, we come this morning, Lord. Father, we humbly come. We praise you. You are worthy. Father, speak to us this morning. Open our hearts, no matter where we are in life, that we would have an encounter with you this morning. I pray in your name. Amen. I invite you, encourage you to keep your Bibles open, and if you have a handout to follow along in your notes as we continue in the series here this morning, Encounters with Jesus. Caught. How many of you have ever been caught doing something you knew was wrong? Sure you have, because we all have been caught at one point in our lives. Uh, Perhaps a kid is caught stealing a fresh-baked cookie by his mom. A student perhaps is caught cheating on a test at school by her teacher. A teen is caught sneaking out at night by his parents. A a dad is caught speeding on the highway by a policeman. A, A wife is caught lying about her Instagram post by her husband. And perhaps even a husband is caught texting another woman by his wife. Caught. We've all been caught. At some time or another, we've all been caught doing something we knew was wrong. And what we find here in John chapter 8 is the story of a woman caught in adultery. Now this story is so popular that people who who rarely come to church, people who rarely even read the scriptures, know about this particular story. In fact, this story also contains one of the most often quoted statements of Jesus Christ when he said, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And so as we approach this story, we should probably pause just to make mention 
and to note that there is some question of where this story, this encounter should be placed in the Bible, or if it should even be placed in God's Word at all. In fact, most modern translations of the Bible note that this particular story is absent in many of the earliest Greek transcripts, or manuscripts, I should say, and Therefore, it may not have even been originally part of John's gospel. And so while there may be some debate on if and where this story fits in John's gospel, there is nonetheless, most Bible scholars believe, there is, there is overwhelming consensus that what happened here is authentic. It was part of Jesus' ministry. It is worthy to be included in the New Testament. In fact, one scholar named Leon Morris writes, But if we cannot feel that this is part of John's gospel, we can feel that the story is true to the character of Jesus. Throughout the history of the church, it has been held that whoever wrote it, this little story is authentic. It rings true. It speaks to our condition. It is thus worth our while to study it, though not as an authentic part of John's writing. So even if this story may not be John, it is certainly Jesus Christ. And at the core of this story is what happens when a sinful woman encounters the Savior, Jesus Christ. And what happens is she experiences grace and truth. And that is what we see in this encounter. That's what leaps off the pages of John's gospel here in John 8. We see the grace and truth of Jesus Christ when a woman is caught in her adultery, but yet she is not condemned. Being caught in sin is embarrassing. And especially when our sin is made public, and then we are shamed. You can almost feel the shame of this woman as she is caught in the act of adultery, She's then dragged half naked into the temple where a crowd of people are already gathered. And then she is placed before Jesus Christ as he is teaching. Yes, she is guilty, all right. There's no mistake about that. But now she is shamed in her sin at the hands of these religious leaders. But it's in this unexpected encounter with Jesus that this woman experiences, perhaps for the very first time in her life, the grace and truth of the Savior. She sees in Jesus Christ what John wrote earlier in chapter 1, verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, the glorious only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This woman's encounter with Jesus, it it illustrates for us the meaning of what John later says there in that same chapter, verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so if you're here this morning and you're wondering in the quietness of your own heart, is it really possible to experience grace and truth even when I'm guilty of sin and overwhelmed by my shame. Listen, this encounter shows us that the answer is yes in Jesus Christ. So let us unpack it a little bit. Let us dive into this encounter and 
see the grace and truth of Jesus here. First of all, notice number one, grace and truth is ruthlessly ignored by the religious leaders. This encounter, it takes place at a time when the opposition to Jesus was growing. And though Jesus still attracted huge crowds, most of the religious leaders who are called the the scribes and the Pharisees were deeply offended by Jesus. After all, here's Jesus coming on the scene. He claims to be God, but he didn't keep their laws. He, He abolished their traditions. Plus, to make matters worse, in their their eyes, he hung out with the wrong kind of people. He was friends of sinners. And so the religious leaders of that day, they, they desperately wanted to bring Jesus down. And they thought that the ideal time would be during one of the feasts the Jews celebrated in Jerusalem each year, such as the Feast of the Tabernacles. But the temple guards that they sent that they had appointed to go and arrest Jesus, would not lay a hand on him. And this is fascinating because it actually tells us in John chapter 7, they wouldn't do so because of the power of Jesus' words as he's taught. And so unable to apprehend Jesus by force, the religious leaders now devise this evil conspiracy to discredit Jesus. It was an evil plot, an evil plan, but it was also a stroke of genius. It's the day after the Feast of the Tabernacles that has ended when it says here in John chapter 8, verse 2, early in the morning, Jesus came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. What happens next is rather shocking. But given what we know about the scribes and the Pharisees, it is not surprising. When we're told in verses 3 through 6, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Now, just picture the scene for a moment in your mind and imagine what it must have been like on that early morning in the temple. Jesus is teaching when he is suddenly interrupted by a band of men bursting into the temple courts with rocks in one hand and a frightened woman in the other. Those listening to Jesus teach scramble to get out of the way. And as the dust settles, we see a band of men is made up of these scribes and Pharisees, prominent teachers and rulers of the Old Testament law, and struggling to keep her own balance in the arms of this band of men is this scantily clad woman. Just moments before, she had been in bed with a man who was not her husband. Who is this woman? What is her name? We don't know. We're not told. But what we do know is she barely had time to cover her naked body before she was dragged out of bed, forced through the streets, down to the temple, and thrown in front of Jesus as Exhibit A in their court of law. And for all practical purposes, this woman caught in adultery, she's already been charged 
tried and convicted by these religious leaders, which is why this whole adulterous scene was a setup from the start. I think it becomes quite clear as you read through this encounter that we notice here that the religious leaders misused this woman because of their indignation of Jesus. Listen, adultery was one of those sins that was punishable by death according to the law of Moses. But according to that same law of Moses, it was also necessary for the couple to be caught in the act. And that's exactly what the religious leaders sought to do here. In fact, we are told two different times that they, that is the scribes and the Pharisees, these religious leaders of the day, they caught this woman in the act of adultery. We're told that in verse 3 and again in verse 4. And so she was guilty. She's been caught in the act. There was no way that she could claim, oh, I was just passing through the streets. I'm on my way home, and you've got me confused with somebody else. No, she was caught. She's caught in the act. And the question is, where is the man that she was with? You see, the law of Moses required that both the man and the woman to pay for adultery with their lives. So why did they drag only the woman forward and not the man? Well, some have suggested that the man escaped somehow. But that's hardly likely when you consider this word caught that is used. In fact, this word caught, it means seized. It means to overcome or to overtake. And it suggests that the religious leaders actually grabbed hold of this adulterous woman, pulled the couple away from each other, and took her. So how could they have missed grabbing the man? when they're both in the same bed. I think they deliberately let him get away. Why? Because the religious leaders, they are not concerned about righteousness here. They're not concerned about holiness here. They were concerned, first and foremost, about trapping Jesus. And, of course, all this shows their their callous attitude towards sin and their blatant disregard and disrespect for this woman. See, they didn't care about this woman. She has no name to them. She has no voice. She has no identity. They were more than willing to make a public spectacle of her if they could somehow use her to trap Jesus. They were just using her, in other words, as a worthless pawn to checkmate Jesus in their scheme, in their plot. And if they had to stone her to death to take down Jesus, then so be it. That was how great their hatred, their indignation of Jesus was. They were willing to misuse this woman. What an evil plot by the religious leaders. And it gets worse. Notice number two, they not only misused the woman, but these religious leaders misused the law in their motivation to trap Jesus. These religious leaders... Listen, they were well acquainted with the laws of Moses, and especially the laws concerning adultery. And yet they treated the law as nothing more than a weapon for trapping Jesus. We see this when they say in verses 4 and 5, look at it with me in your Bibles, teacher, their 
They're referring to Jesus here. This woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? Now, there was no need for this question. As they state, the law was quite clear on this particular point. So the question that they presented before Jesus only had one purpose. According to verse 6, they said this to what? To test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Even further, if these religious leaders had been in a position to catch this woman in the act of adultery, then surely they must have been in a position to keep the sin from happening in the first place. See, if they really wanted to uphold the law of Moses, they would have prevented the sin rather than waiting to exploit the sin. But they didn't care about that. They didn't care about God. They didn't care about the holiness of God. They didn't care about his righteousness. That's not what motivated these men. Listen, it was an evil manipulation on their part simply to advance their own hateful agenda to take down Jesus. However, you do have to admit the serious dilemma that their trap put Jesus in. Listen, the intention of these religious leaders was to discredit Jesus. And this trap was crafted to that very end. As one pastor said, By presenting this woman to Jesus, the Jewish leaders hoped to impel Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. They were trying to, in other words, trap Jesus between his preaching of grace and the demands of the law. They were, in a sense, saying to Jesus, listen, we dare you to go against the law of Moses, even if it means trampling on the forgiveness that you've been preaching about. It seems at this moment in this encounter that Jesus really is between a rock and a hard place. In fact, just consider the options that are presented to Jesus here. On the one hand, Jesus certainly could urge forgiveness of this woman. This would be consistent with his preaching of mercy and grace, but at the expense of setting aside the law. That would greatly discredit Jesus' ministry. It would undermine his credibility. After all, God is holy. God hates sin. Even this sin. I mean, how could you just brush aside the demands of God's justice? If Jesus did that, he would not be seen as credible as a divine messenger of Jesus. On the other hand, Jesus could certainly take his stand with Moses, calling for this woman's condemnation. But that would compromise his teaching of grace. People will question everything that he's ever taught about love and compassion and forgiveness. He'll be considered a hypocrite, and no one will want to follow him. Just imagine Jesus saying in this moment, well, this woman is guilty. Yes, she is and must be punished. Let's gather the stones and put her to death. If Jesus had said that, what sinner would ever come weeping to his feet for forgiveness? 
What person overcome by temptation would ever come to Jesus for help? Such a person would conclude in their minds, no, Jesus condemns sinners. He will give me up for judgment and punishment. And so the choice seems to be at this very moment for Jesus either to trample the law or to trample grace. As one author, A.W. Pink, expresses, he expresses the dilemma well when he writes in his book, the problem presented to Christ by his enemies was no mere local one. So far as human reason can perceive it, was the profoundest moral problem which ever could or can confront God himself. That problem was how justice and mercy could be harmonized. How can mercy be exercised when the sword of justice bars the woman's way? How can grace flow forth except by slighting holiness? So what will Jesus do here? How will he respond? Jesus, he doesn't, it's interesting, he doesn't lay out the woman's life story like he did, if you remember in John chapter 4, with the woman at the well. When he encountered the woman at the well, he had this conversation with her, and he told her her whole past. It was a sinful past. She had five women or five men that she had been married to and was even sleeping and living with another woman who was not, or another man who was not her husband. And it's also interesting, like Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount, he does not interpret the law. Instead, Jesus does and says very little. But what he says and what he does is very powerful. Notice number two. Grace and truth is justly revealed by Jesus. Now, again, imagine this woman. I don't know about you, but I picture this woman at this point in the encounter as she is standing before Jesus, surrounded by the crowd at the hands of these merciless religious leaders. I picture the despair and fear in her eyes. I imagine she's also filled with great shame as she stands guilty in the temple court with the crowd gaping at her and the religious leader somewhat gloating over her. We got Jesus. But it's here in this moment that she encounters the grace and truth of Jesus Christ as he now responds to these accusers. And his response is just as unexpected as it is remarkable. Notice what Jesus does and says here in verses 6 and 8. John says, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. Jesus does two things here. He does something, he says something. And in doing something and saying something, he, first of all, ignores his accusers. Jesus, first of all, ignored his accusers as the religious leaders continued to press Jesus to answer their question. And the the tense of the verb here is they are 
They are pressing Jesus. They are pestering him. They continue to pose their question to Jesus. What do you say? What do you say? And Jesus just seems to ignore them. He does not talk. He does not answer them at first. He simply bent down and wrote on the ground with his finger. Interesting. I think one reason why Jesus does that is because he has absolutely no use for their hypocrisy. And so he just ignores them before he finally speaks to them. And then after saying these simple words that we're familiar with, he then bends down and writes on the ground a second time. Now, the obvious question we all want to know is what? What did he write on the ground? And it's impossible to know for sure what Jesus wrote on the ground. We are not told what he writes, so we can only speculate as to what he wrote. But I will make some observations about that. It is very interesting that these religious leaders had come to Jesus armed with what? The law of Moses. The same law that God wrote on two tablets of stone with his own finger. And so perhaps by using Jesus, that is, using his finger to write on the ground, perhaps Jesus is now claiming authority of the law of God. And if so, how could the law be used against him when he came to fulfill that law? Some Bible scholars think that Jesus was writing out his response before speaking to them, as Roman judges did when rendering a verdict. Other commentators think that Jesus was writing out the law's condemnation against false witnesses. Or perhaps Jesus even wrote out the words of Jeremiah 17, 13 that says this, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth. It's also interesting to note that this is actually the only time in the New Testament that Jesus is recorded as to writing anything. In fact, this word that is used here for write, it can actually mean something like doodle, or it can mean to write down a record against, such as when Job says in the Old Testament book of Job 13.26, for Job is saying and referring to God, for God, you write bitter things against me. So perhaps these men saw Jesus writing the list of sins they have hidden in the dark recesses of their own lives. Whatever Jesus wrote, it certainly set the stage for what Jesus said. And what Jesus said, along with what he wrote, it exposed his accusers. You see, the ones who had done the exposing of this woman caught in adultery are now the ones being exposed. It just makes you wonder, did these men think that they could fool Jesus? The irony is, or the the irony is, they did not realize who they were standing in front of. Listen, Jesus is the Son of God. He is the light of the world, as this verse 12 tells us right after this encounter. And now that light 
is shining on them when Jesus says in verse 7, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And with those words, Jesus does two things. He protected the woman and he put these accusers to flight. You see, at the same time, Jesus remained faithful to the law and protected the woman from harm since none dared to take up his challenge. In this encounter, I I picture in my mind Jesus very, very close to this woman now that's been brought before him. I even wonder if Jesus placed himself between the woman and her accusers as if to kind of protect her. And as if to say, go ahead and throw a stone at her. Moses was right, but let the one who is without sin throw first. One thing we do know is that Jesus was not opposing the law. Rather, Jesus was opposing these men who sought to misuse the law. In fact, according to Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 7, the law of Moses required that these witnesses had to be the first to cast the stones. And that these witnesses had to be free from any association with the crime or sin itself. Two chapters later in Deuteronomy 19, verses 15 through 21, adds that the witnesses must not testify falsely or testify from a malicious intent on their part. And if they do, that the punishment would have been inflicted on the guilty would have been meted out to them as well. And so these laws that God gave to the children of Israel, listen, they protected the rights of the accused and they made it dangerous for evil men like these religious leaders to use the law for their own crooked, evil purposes. More importantly, It's interesting, Jesus also lifted up their question from just the procedural element, which is what they were focused on, and he lifts it up to the moral level, where these wicked men could not stand before the Son of God, the light of the world, in their own self-righteousness. You see, in the glaring presence now of the Son of God, these wicked men lacked the gall to cast the first stone. Notice what happens in verse 9. Look at it. It says, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. You can almost picture, as Jesus says this, as he bends down, writes again in the ground, Their feet begin to shuffle. There's a nervousness about them. The rocks that they had in their hand begin to be dropped, and they're falling to the ground. And then one by one, these men slowly walk away in shame, beginning with the oldest to the youngest. James Montgomery Boyce adds this insight. He says, Obviously, there was something in the gaze of the Lord Jesus Christ or in the tone of his voice or simply in the power of his presence that got through to these men, unrepentant as they were, and left them powerless. 
Think of the efforts they had gone through. Think of the plotting. Yet they were destroyed in a moment when they were confronted by the God who masters circumstances. And in case you're wondering, Jesus' response to this situation, it does not mean that there can never be justice on the human level. It doesn't mean that no jury can ever condemn a criminal because the jurors are not perfectly sinless. In fact, Calvin writes to this point when he says, Christ is, he's not forbidding here that sinners do their duty in correcting the sins of others. But by his, this word, he only reproves hypocrites who mildly flatter themselves and their vices, but are excessively severe and even act the part of felons in censoring others. In other words, what Calvin is saying to us, he say, let us here as Christ followers, as genuine believers, let us have a merciful, gracious attitude towards sinners, knowing that we are also forgiven sinners. This is the grace and truth revealed to the religious leaders, which they knew nothing about themselves. They certainly did not practice it. And it is now offered to this woman caught in adultery. We see this in point number three, where grace and truth is lovingly offered to this woman. I'm sure by now you have seen the contrast between the way Jesus treated the sinful woman and the way these religious leaders treated this woman. You see, Jesus cared about this woman caught in adultery. She was a human being made in the image of God. He cared greatly for her. In fact, that is one thing we are seeing throughout these encounters in the Gospels. In these encounters, Jesus cares about people. Whether it's a Pharisee named Nicodemus in John chapter 3, Jesus was willing to meet with him at night and speak with him and to answer his questions. Why? Because Jesus cared about the Pharisees. He cared about this one named Nicodemus who sincerely was seeking and asking Jesus how to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus cared about the Canaanite woman that we learned about in Matthew 15. He cared about the Samaritan woman at the well. He also, we saw last Sunday, he cared about the frustrated fisherman named Peter. And so we see all throughout these encounters that Jesus cares about people. Jesus knows what's going on in our lives. Listen, he was not naive about this woman's sin here. He sees behind the pretense and he deals with us in grace and truth. Notice how Jesus showed compassion for this woman's desperate situation. Now, this is perhaps one of the most tender scenes in all the Bible. It's just Jesus and the woman. She's left alone with one man, with the man who is qualified to stone her, but then she hears his voice. Finally, somebody is speaking to her directly instead of about her, instead of using her. According to verses 10 through 11, notice what happens. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? 
Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. I've often wondered what this woman was thinking, what was going through her mind through this whole encounter. Makes you wonder what she expected from Jesus. I'm sure this was probably her very first encounter with the Son of God, the light of the world, the Savior. Did she, at this moment, did she expect Jesus to condemn her? Maybe she expected Jesus to just simply walk away from her, like these religious leaders, and it seems like the crowd had left as well. I'm not sure what she expected, but I do know this. What she got, she never expected. She was giving a pardon by Jesus Christ. It's unbelievable. It's amazing. Notice what Jesus does. First of all, Jesus forgave the woman of her sin. He forgave the woman of her sin. Do you know what this means for every one of us here this morning? It means that God, who has the the right to condemn us, is the one who has the desire to forgive us. What an encouragement for us to, to stop hiding our sin before God and to come humbly to Jesus Christ, confessing our sin and seeking the forgiveness that He so freely gives and we so greatly need. And so the first thing that Jesus does is He forgave the woman of her sin, but do not miss the second thing that he does. Jesus then freed the woman to sin no more. You see, God wants to do more than just forgive you. He wants to change you. He wants to transform you. And so what Jesus does here is he actually joins forgiveness with a call to obedience. When he tells the woman, from now on, Sin no more. What this tells us here is that Jesus never ignored her sin. Instead, Jesus actually confronted her sin. Jesus never said to her, listen, it's all right. Don't worry about it. As long as it's making you happy, just go on doing what you've been doing. No, he said to her, listen, it is wrong. It's all wrong. And if I am indeed the Lord, as you claim I am, by using that term for me, then stop living in adultery. You see, for God's forgiveness, it is not a license to sin more. Listen, the forgiveness that we receive from Jesus Christ, it actually sets us free to sin no more and to live a life of righteousness. Just consider this woman's encounter with Jesus. She is caught in adultery, but she is not condemned. She was dragged into the temple guilty of sin, but she walked out forgiven. That is the beauty of grace and truth in Jesus Christ. And for those living here this morning in the darkness of sin, if you will encounter Jesus, if you will come humbly to him, listen, you will find the same thing this woman found. 
You will find forgiveness of your sin and new life in Jesus Christ. This encounter also reminds us. You can't read about this encounter and not be reminded of this truth. It reminds us and it shows us that we are caught in sin as well. You see, all of us here this morning are just like this woman. We are no better than her. We are guilty of sin, and we deserve condemnation because of our sin. Listen, we are helpless to change our condition, and we are hopeless unless someone helps us. But just when we are about to be condemned in our sin, Jesus steps in to rescue us. This is the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus came not to condemn us, but to save us. He says to this woman, and he says to every sinner here this morning who comes for mercy and grace and truth, neither do I condemn you. You say, how can Jesus do that? How can he say that to me? Isn't Jesus holy? Isn't sin sin? Yes, so how can... Jesus, remain just and remain holy while at the same time say these words of forgiveness. Well, that after all is the dilemma that the religious leaders tried to trap Jesus with. But we must remember that Jesus spoke these words in the shadow of the cross. You see, Jesus did not dismiss this woman's sin. He died for her sin. And so we ask the question that now has eternal implications for every one of us here this morning. And that is, on what basis can Jesus say, neither do I condemn you when we here are all guilty of sin? And the answer is the cross on which Jesus died for our sins and satisfied God's justice. You see, Jesus didn't condemn this woman nor does he condemn us, but he came to be condemned on our behalf. And so you can write over this whole encounter two different verses here. The first of which comes out of John's Gospel in John chapter 3, verse 17. And of course, we all know the verse right that precedes verse 17. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not but have everlasting life. But then comes verse 17. And it says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And then Paul later on writes in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so Jesus forgives us on the basis of his saving work on the cross, which we receive by faith. But make no mistake about it, in this encounter, not everyone went away forgiven. The religious leaders here, those scribes and those Pharisees, so sure of their moral standing before God because of their outward religion and because of their self-righteousness. Listen, they walked away one by one 
condemned in their sin because they rejected the Savior, Jesus Christ. They did not hear from Jesus what this woman heard from Jesus. Neither do I condemn you. Rather, they heard what Jesus said earlier in John chapter 3 again, verse 36. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The question this morning becomes, are you the woman caught in adultery but not condemned? Or are you like these religious leaders who are condemned because you have still rejected Jesus Christ? These encounters are recorded for us here in the Gospels so that we might see ourselves in the stories. That we might see ourselves in these encounters. And that we might see the Gospel as well in these encounters and how Jesus came for us. And so let us see in this particular encounter the beauty and the power of the grace and truth of Jesus Christ and the difference it makes in our lives. Let us see that because of what Jesus did on the cross, God God is not out to condemn you. Listen, God wants to forgive you and set you free from a life that is dominated by sin. Let us see what Martin Luther saw when he said, if you have tasted the law in sin, and if you know the ache of sin, then look here. See how sweet in comparison the grace of God is, the grace which is offered to us in the gospel. With your heads bowed. As you look at this encounter, who do you see? Do you see yourself in the woman or do you see yourself in these religious leaders? I pray that this encounter speaks to you and by the Holy Spirit, you open up your heart to see your need for Jesus Christ. And that you would humbly come to him, begging for his forgiveness and receiving it the grace that he offers to you, and then the truth to go and sin no more, to be set free, to live a holy life unto God. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the gospel of our Lord Jesus and for the fact that without him we could never deal with our sins and forgiveness and all these things. We couldn't, we can't, but you can, Lord. That's why you came. It's why you died. It's why you rose again. And so by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can change our hearts. You can transform our lives. In Jesus' name, we pray, amen. Zach, praise team, why don't you guys come on up and say, prepare for us to stand and sing as we dismiss. Let me leave you again with this, the grace and truth of what Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. Leave here knowing this, being reminded of this, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those 
who are what? In Jesus Christ. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Jesus from the law of sin and death.